Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Hi, this is Andrew Olson. Before we get into today's episode, I want to talk to you leader to leader about something important. As leaders, especially at times of rapid change and uncertainty, it's easy to live and act from a place of fear. If we're not careful, that fear can paralyze us and keep us from effectively leading at work, at home, and in every relationship. But that doesn't have to be the case. My friend Ben Straub, founder of Velocity Strategy Solutions, a growth architecture firm that helps leaders and organizations accelerate revenue and maximize impact through data-driven strategies, has just released a great new resource for leaders. It's called Eight Things Leaders Say When They Fear Change and How to Confront Those Fears. This five-page resource gives you eight of the most frequent responses we as leaders have when we experience fear and the specific steps and language that you can use to move beyond fear to action. Click the link in the episode show notes to get this resource today. You'll be a better leader tomorrow because of it. Hey, this is Andrew Olson with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I am really excited for a second conversation today with Brady Josephson, who is the Managing Director at the Institute for Online Fundraising at Next After. Brady, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be back. Hey, man, looking forward to this discussion. So what we're going to talk about today is uh, fundraising, testing, and optimization, and some of the key lessons that you all at Next After have learned from something north of 2,500 different experiments with nonprofits. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we haven't ran them all. We have an open source tool where any nonprofit in the world can submit their own experiment and, um, you know, contribute to this open source learning. But we get to look through all of them and try to find these different patterns to see what's working or not. So, yeah, it's, it's about 2,500 or so right now. Awesome. So I want to start off before we get into specifics, talking a little bit about the importance of testing. I've been in this game for 20 years now, and I've worked with over a thousand different nonprofits, and, and I tend to see two different camps emerge. One that says, we're never going to test because it puts risk on our revenue and it's expensive to do. And another that says, let's go all in and test as much as possible. What are your recommendations for how an organization should sort of develop a testing philosophy of their own? Yeah, that's a good question. First, I'd say my experience is also those two camps, but they're not equally weighted, those two camps. One camp is much, 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 much larger than the other. Yep. So, I mean, the thing that we'd say about testing, there's a lot of things. I think one of the biggest benefits that no one really talks about is the cultural benefit of how much time we spend just sitting around boardrooms saying, I think, well, I think, when I think, and I think. And maybe back in the day, we had to rely on that, but there's a better way to figure out to get answers from the only people that can really answer questions as it relates to fundraising, which is donors themselves. So we should be doing more qualitative data, interviewing donors, asking them surveys, et cetera, but we should be doing more experimentation to see what do they actually respond to. And that's really, really critical for speed, but it's also critical to just get away from inherent biases. You know, you staff leaders and board members are the worst sources of information to predict donor behavior. It's the worst. And so this idea that we can all get in a room and somehow come up with the best ideas, you know, totally false. So that, that's really key. It, it, it helps with speed. It helps um, move away from some of these cultural things. And then the, the practice is actually, it's, it's really about risk reduction, right? If you keep doing what you're doing, who says it's even working, <laughs> right? So the Science of uh, Philanthropy Initiative a few years ago did a, did a study of saying, how often are you actually doing scientific research? 
and it was like, it was about a quarter of organizations had done more scientific based research. So testing over a five year period. Right. So those are people that are, are, you know, three quarters of organizations aren't really getting hard data or reliable data. You know, if you do something one month and do something another month, that's not a reliable result. That's not a test. Right. Trying things. It's cool. It's not a test. And then they asked how, how frequently are you actually evaluating your fundraising methods? And it was only about 30%. So, you know, the vast majority of nonprofits and this was me too. I was a marketing director and a director of development and Hey, what did we do last year? what did we do last month? <laughs> Let's just do it a little bit better this month. You know, I get it. But the real risk is if what you're doing really isn't working and you don't know, you just keep going down this path of not having success and you don't even know it. That's actually the biggest risk of all. So you should pay a little money, pay a little time to actually know if you're on the right path or not. You can really only do that through something like testing. So it's really a risk mitigation strategy. And, but you're right. A lot of people say, oh, it is risky. And I'd say it's actually more risky to not test. That's the riskiest thing at all of all is to just go off what you've been doing your own intuition. Yeah, you know, I, I have maybe a personally biased perspective on this, but I, I think that that story of, of it being risky is a, a narrative that's threaded by fundraising agencies because it reduces their margins when they work with a client and have to mm. test. Yeah, um, that's... <laughs> Probably not wrong. <laughs> Maybe a little controversial, but it's, it's what I think is the case. Yeah. I, I'm curious to get your perspective. So assume that an organization says, okay, great. We're, we're convinced we need to test. Are you of the perspective that an organization should sort of take it as the year goes by and decide things to test in an iterative way? Or do you lean more towards the idea of you know, building out a sort of a testing roadmap for the year like what what what's your recommendation yeah so it's it's definitely the latter right and there's always the ideal and then there's what's like the practical and so one thing that we always say is some testing is better than no testing you know just the fact that your testing isn't the destination it's really a starting point but for us for example when we work with clients we don't work with anyone until we do what a three-month audit of sorts and we get to know their data and you know, look at all their conversion funnels and try to establish a benchmark and produce, you know, ROI projections and all the things that, you know, consultants and agencies should be doing. But one of the other deliverables is the design of experiments where we actually try to structure, you know, here's 10 to 60 experiments that you should run. And we try to prioritize them from basically easiest to pull off and most impactful to kind of, you know, hardest to do, least impactful. If you can imagine kind of a matrix, right, of difficulty and impact, you know, you want to start with high impact, low difficulty, and try to work your way down. And so if you have that roadmap, it, it really is a roadmap. It's not like you have to follow it. And we don't always follow it with clients. Because the beauty of testing is you might test something and then it triggers some other idea. And then maybe that just supersedes the testing idea you had three months ago. So if you, even if you do have a roadmap, which you should have, you, know, you have to hold it loose. The whole value of experimentation and testing is that you can be a little bit more agile and something like COVID comes up or you see, you know, a matching grant comes in or, you know, you have a new donation tool that rolls out a feature about recurring giving. Like there's all kinds of external factors that you need to be open to, to infuse it to your roadmap. But there is a way that tests can build upon tests. Uh, and there is a, a bit of a structure to how you probably should go about testing. And on a, on a high level, it's making sure that you're, you're getting a high impact results or learning something important. Too many organizations, hey, we're going to test, let's test button color, you know? Okay, cool. Red button versus blue button. What did you learn about your donors? That they like blue buttons versus red? Well, maybe, you know? Do you even, <laughs> do you even actually you know that? And it's such a low lever test. 
right? Someone has to get to the page, read the message, get to the form, and then, you know, click the button. So it's not going to move the needle very much, and you're not going to learn that much about donors. So a high-value test is all about message and, and copy, basically, of like, what is the offer that's going on? It's really difficult to test, but it's the highest impacting that we've seen. You can change your form all day long and the gift array, and you're just kind of dancing around the edges. Fundamentally, if you can't communicate why someone should give to you today, as opposed to another organization or not at all, you're not really going to move the needle. So that's a high impact test, but it's also fairly difficult. So one of the things that we'll start with is just how do you get more traffic to your donation page? Most nonprofits suffer from volume, email volume or lack of traffic volume. So if we can do things pre-donation page from a Facebook ad, from an email, from search advertising, from other parts of the website, how do you just get more people to visit a donation page? You can actually diagnose, does your donation page have a big problem or not? And then once you have volume, now it makes testing easier. So we'll often start with kind of what we call, you know, traffic tests, basically, is how do we get more traffic to a page? They're also the easier things to test because it involves you know, Facebook or, you know, an email program or something like that, which are generally easier to manipulate and test. Once you get into your form, you know, you got different providers, more code snippets, more tracking, it gets a little bit trickier. So that's, that's a high level, quick little, you know, overview of some things around testing and structuring. No, that's good stuff. So it actually leads me into my next question. And you, you kind of already touched on this, but this next question is, I'm sure that you have had conversations with organizations where they've said, I want to test this, or I want to test that. And being a good strategist, you're listening and, and trying to think through how to do this. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking either I would never test that. That's a ridiculous thing to test, or there's no need to test it. 57 other organizations have already tested it and it's consistently been X, right? Can you talk about some of those sort of experiences and maybe are there things that just aren't worth testing or things that are just do's instead of test? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a really tricky one because a lot of people, you know, want, want best practice. And what we say is best practice isn't a destination, it's a starting point. Like, just because everyone else is doing something some way doesn't necessarily, it's going to, you know, work for you. So at one level, like, everything can and should be tested, you know, revalidate for you and your audience and your donors. Again, that's the ideal. In, pra- in practicality, no, there are some things that, you know, you, you probably, you know, shouldn't be testing. And, you know, should you talk in more vague you organization centric language no you don't need to test that you know that's that's stupid <laughs> you know and no one ever actually suggests that test but like that's that's a bad test or like the low lever tests you know button we get asked a lot about emojis and subject lines and it is just like well why you know why why <laughs> test that you know what are you what are you hoping to learn what's the impact and like what would you change moving forward you know because of that are you just throwing emojis in all your subject lines and things like that. So, you know, that's, that's part of what goes into it. One that we have to, we have to retest because people don't trust us is like the, the plain text first design email, um, (laughs) which, which we run all the time and it almost always works. And now we just got one uploaded from the Atlanta ballet. Who's not a client who uploaded this experiment increased clicks, you know, 30, 40%. Based on no design, we uh, were doing a research project with public radio stations, and one of them ran this test. You know, an NPR public radio, like heavy brand, yeah, strong brand, removed all the design elements and uh, saw a 28% increase in donations and a 79% increase in conversion uh, from those who clicked by removing design elements. And we just get so much pushback all the time of like, what do you mean? 
And what's so interesting is like, we have so many tests now that show that this works. So one, like, why can't you trust? And two, just test it. It's a pretty easy test. Like write your email, like do your normal email and then rip out all the visuals and send it to two groups. Like it's a pretty simple test. And so, you know, the resistance there. And so we're still trying to figure out like, what is the resistance? I mean, we have 2,500 experiments. This is our job. This is our livelihood. And we still really struggle to get buy-in to do testing. So you know, the, the struggle is real to convince people to test good things or, or not have to test everything all over again. But if I had a great answer, A, it would have been shorter and B, you know, we would do it with all of our clients. So I don't know. <laughs> no, I, it, it's funny that, that you landed with the sort of branded email templates versus the non, the, the very simple text-based emails, because we, we often have that same conversation. And like you, we consistently see that um, the more that it looks like it came just from your desk, the more you know, the better it works. But I did have somebody recently say to me, my whole job is to make sure that people know our brand. And so asking me to do this doesn't make me feel good. And, and I think for me, that like distilled the last five years of this argument. Totally. Right? Yeah, 100%. 100%. So I, I guess I get that piece. I don't understand if the goal is to raise more money, why you would fight it. But you know, hey. <laughs> yeah, no, there's definitely something. There's definitely something in there about, you know, our personal you know, biases or our personal agendas. And sometimes it really is like, it's my job to design emails and you're in the room saying my job is useless. You know, like yep. that, that part is real sometimes. Too. Talk to me if you can about, I guess the question I have in my mind is, is there an organization maybe size or capacity wise that you would say you're not ready for testing? Or is this really such a democratized opportunity that anybody could be doing it? Yeah. So, so two things this is, I mean, somewhat controversial because there is some discrepancy in the, you know, testing community of which I'm very much on the fringes, <laughs> uh, but I like to dip my toes in. You need a lab uh, coat if you want to really be in it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. You know, of, of like the sample size and you know, how big do you need to be or how much volume do you need to, to run a test? My, my personal belief is the cultural benefit of curiosity and testing mm. far outweighs the likelihood of a statistically significant result. So I encourage every organization of all size to be curious and to run a test. Now, the smaller you are, the less traffic you have, the less likelihood that you'll get a statistically significant result. But two things, one, there's ways to run experiments that on small traffic that increase the chances. So the smaller the traffic, the more radical the change you have to make. Right? If, you, if you're only sending an email to a thousand people and you're just going to change one word, zero chance of ever reaching statistical <laughs> significance, right? You're already behind the eight ball with a thousand people. You probably need two groups of 5,000 to have a real good go. But if you're just sending to two groups of a thousand, what if you changed a bunch of variables along a common hypothesis? And this is where the, the, the kind of human looking sounding feeling email, which we find in our research works, is actually also a pretty good hypothesis. So you could actually change who the email's from, you could change the subject line, you could change the design, and you could change the tone of copy, the tone within the copy. Now you're changing multiple variables, but it's all along one hypothesis of a more human looking sounding feeling email will result in more money or an email that looks more like a person will raise more money, right? If you kept all the design and you just changed who it was from, are you really testing that hypothesis? Well, no, that's actually a sender test. So what this is called the variable clusters. And so if you can actually make a radical change, it's more easy to see a difference amongst the two groups as long as it aligns you know, with one common hypothesis. So it's kind of a, a low traffic testing method 
And then other times we'll do a radical test that's maybe less on a clear hypothesis, although it should always be on a clear hypothesis, but it's really like a, a pulse check. You know, are we on the right track? You know, you could change one variable of a donation page over a course of a year. Or what if you just have this hypothesis of saying, I think this is causing friction to the donor. I think they don't understand the value here. What if we overhaul this whole thing so it looks and feels more like this and then see, and are you even on the right track? Well, if this one is 50% higher, well, now let's start optimizing this one. What are the little things we can change? But if you start from a low crappy point and you start optimizing, you're just optimizing crap, right? So sometimes there's a radical test that you need to do to figure out are you on the right track? So those are small you know, tests. Uh, or a radical test if you have small traffic. Uh, so there's ways to do it with small traffic. And I think the cultural, you know, other wins are, are more worth it. And then the second thing is statistical significance. None of us are trying to get published in academic journals. We're not producing, you know, prescription pills that will actually cause people to die. So statistical significance is really about risk reduction or, or what's the chances that you got this thing wrong. And so for me, if I'm a practitioner and when we run tests, for me, anything over 80% I'm interested in, you know, if there's a two out of 10 chance that we got this wrong, I'm okay with that, right? So the more high value it is and the more serious it is, well, then the, the risk threshold should be higher. But there's also nothing that wrong from an optimization standpoint to think about reducing, you know, statistical significance, which then means you need a little bit smaller of a sample size. But that's also quite controversial in the testing community. Well, as controversial as it might be, I like that perspective. And I think I'm in favor of now quoting you when I'm asked, and I might just say, you're just optimizing crap. <laughs> Fair enough. Brady Joseph said, put it on, put it right. on the mug. Yeah. That's your campaign slogan for next year, right? <laughs> yeah. So you touched on this a bit earlier, but you know, in the, in the typical like direct mail arena, we, we often talk about testing audience, offer, and creative, and that they have relative differing impact in the, the potential performance of a campaign. Mm. So you talked about the, the messaging and the offer, which I think you know, we're, we're in alignment on. To what extent do you think, uh, or have you seen either changes in audience composition or creative deliver significantly better testing results than, than messaging? Yeah, I think, I think unpacking the offer from the creative is difficult, you know, even in a direct mail package, but more so in, in digital. It's not like people only just, you know, read the offer absent whatever else is around it. Like sure. Right. So we spend a lot of time doing email. And so you got the email envelope, who it's from, the subject line and preview text, but that has to work with the copy that's actually within the email with the design. And that has to work with the landing page. Like those things aren't treated in isolation because you can you know, falsely get a bunch of opens with a crazy subject line and then no clicks, or you can throw in a video or have a super short email that's vague and get more clicks to a donation page, but a lower conversion rate. So those elements all work together, which is why we talk about, you know, like a donor mountain, like there's steps up the donor mountain. We have to communicate value each and every step. You can't just get an open job done or get a click job hmm. done. No, it's like each and every step, there's something to optimize and they have to work together, right? So, so I think it's hard to unpack the offer from the creative and then also in theory from, from the audience. So the audience is a little bit easier to, to separate out um, where we do most audience testing is really on the acquisition side with advertising, particularly sure. Facebook where you can get quite specific, you know, in a creepy way and quite granular. <laughs> um, I, I wish we could do a lot more on the segmentation and, and that kind of thing on the email side, 
but I mean, even with really large nonprofits, it's, it's not as easy as it, as you'd think, or as it should be to get, you know, the demographic data, behavioral data, working past giving data through all these tools, all working together in real time. You know, it's, it's not as easy as, as you'd like. So segmenting on, on, um, email is getting easier, but it's still, you know, tricky. So I think it always revolves around the offer. That's by far the most important thing that we've seen, right? There's different audiences that uh, can all connect with a similar message. And normally when you build message, you build, you've got a core value proposition, which is why someone should give to you as opposed to another organization or not at all. And that core value proposition doesn't really change. That's kind of what makes you likable or unique or exclusive or credible. Those things don't really change. But then throughout the year, you'll create different kind of offers, either specific to a campaign or specific to an audience segment. But the, the fundamental value proposition doesn't change dr- dramatically, right? So that's, that's the thing that's actually, you know, most important. And then why we focus a lot on audience on the acquisition side is, there's a lot of people who are interested in content, but not everyone's likely to become a donor. And that's probably been one of the biggest things that we've learned over the past couple of years using different techniques on Facebook in particular is how do you optimize for donor likelihood, not click likelihood or even, you know, email subscriber likelihood, but how do we find people that are most likely to actually be donors? Cause that's what we're, what we're trying to do. You know, that's, sure. that's the goal here. So long answer short again, I think the, the message or the offer is, is the most important it's hard to do that outside or absent creative and then audience on the acquisition side is generally where we have more control and it's harder once people kind of get into the database and then it gets really complex in a hurry. Well, and then just get in the database to talk to your email service you know, provider and getting those two to sync up. I mean, that's the, the you know pain of most of my days uh, at this point. So I totally hear you there. I'm curious with the testing that you guys have done and what you've seen, to what extent does the device play a role in, in testing? And, and you know, are there things you have to do to control for that? Or is it something that you actually lean into and say, let's test for that as well? Yeah. So one, we almost always optimize for desktop when it comes to giving. Okay. Um, conversion rate on desktop is typically higher as well as average gift. So that's, that's where we normally focus our time and attention if the ask is to make a donation. So email ask, or we rarely do ads direct to donation. It's normally sign up for email first and then move into what we call an instant donation ask. You know, very few people come online to give, they come online to get. So how can you give someone something first and then move them into an ask? So we'll, we spend most of our time focused first on, on desktop. That's where most revenue comes from. That's where uh, online donors who are typically older, that's where they come from. But then we'll always look at splits. So then you, you will look at splits by, it's hard to look at splits by age. You don't always get that information, but you do get device information. What's tough about testing is then, you know, if you're already suffering from a volume problem as a lot of nonprofits do, now you start splitting it up amongst different devices. You know, the data just goes down and then the likelihood of getting results also goes down. So we'll normally run the experiment, not with a particular device in mind. And then we'll look at the splits afterwards and see how did it change differently amongst devices and then also amongst segments, primarily simple segments like, you know, lapsed donors, new donors, current Mm. donors, pretty simple segmentation. But we do see some differences in device and we do see some differences in audience. One of the the things that we're starting to to piece together is that um, people who make donations on mobile are possibly more likely to be influenced by social proof type factors. So, you know, most common amounts or, you know, pre-selected with so many other people gave or little nudges like that. We validated that test on, on a homepage 
and it was like 28% increase, something like that. Just by highlighting $50 is most popular. But when we kind of looked at the split, we saw that 44% of that was really, or, or mobile giving accounted for 44% of the lift. There was a disproportionate increase in mobile. And so thinking, you know, if you're on a mobile, you're moving quicker, probably. You're more likely to be coming from a social channel. Um, so there is some, you know, tangential evidence of sorts to say, uh, social proof might actually play a bigger factor for people on mobile devices. So that's something to think about. Uh, the vast majority of people come from email on their mobile phone still. So, you know, thinking about how does that specific email to donation page, how does that flow look as opposed to people maybe visiting a homepage from their desktop and navigating to a main donation page. There's some differences there. But all in all, the only things that we've seen to be very specific on device is one, you don't strip away the value proposition. There's a temptation to like remove the copy and let people go straight into the form yep. because they are moving quick. But that's the, that's the reason why people give is their understanding of why we should give, which is largely through copy. And so when you remove that, great, you see a form, but a form is all cost and the copy is where they get the value. So like that's, that's a no, no, but uh, a lot of the like supporting images and a lot of the side testimonials that are often kind of in the side of your view, when you go on mobile, it has to be in one column anyways, and they get stuffed way at the bottom. You can often get rid of those and hide those. So it really distills down to like, what are the core, core elements why someone should give? And it's really your value proposition, you know, gift selection and form. The other stuff is less essential on a mobile form compared to a desktop. It's one of the things. So we're just about out of time, but I do have one more question for you. And it's really around sort of the back of the house side of testing. And I know one area that a lot of nonprofits struggle with is, is in tracking. Can you talk a little bit about just sort of how an organization needs to think about tracking and what some of the common maybe mistakes or opportunities are for, for organizations to improve that area so that they can know with confidence that they're actually going to be able to read their results? Yeah, massive. Yeah, this, we maybe should have started with this. This is, the, <laughs> this is the, the biggest factor, I think. In There's the culture factor, which is probably one, and then testing is probably number two. So again, when we work with, with clients, we create this roadmap. Initiative one is almost always set up tracking. Almost every nonprofit organization has poor tracking, large ones as well. And there's, there's so many levels of tracking. Like they'll go through, oh, on a Chrome browser, you know, on your mobile, this thing is broken this way. Like this super, super granular, granular. But if you get, you know, 30% of mobile traffic on Chrome, like that's, that's like $5,000 for some organizations. That's just, they're just seeing something that's broken, right? So there's, there's a cost to setting up tracking in terms of time, maybe outside consultant, but you can't optimize that, which you can't measure. And that's what's so critical. So one, just having no tracking is, is way, way, way too prevalent. But the biggest thing is organizations don't have like e-commerce set up within Google Analytics, which allows you to track online giving right within Google Analytics. So, you know, when people say, oh yeah, we have tracking set up. I don't mean you go into your CRM, you run a report, you see people who gave online, and then you try to somehow marry that up with people who received emails or something like that. You should be able to log into Google Analytics and see all your donations by source, by channel, you know, by time of day, all within Google Analytics so that you don't actually need to go into your CRM to figure out, you know, how many online gifts you had that day or that month. It's really the only way that you can get to like conversion rates to actually see how pages are performing, how different traffic sources are performing, how different advertising programs are performing. Is it, there are some ways to get around it with say like Facebook pixels and things like that, but fundamentally it comes down to e-commerce within Google Analytics. 
And that's by far the biggest gap that we've seen in, in testing is how few organizations have that set up full stop and then have it set up really well. Yeah, I, I hear you on that and it's, it's our experience as well. So I do think that that's really critical and you're right. We probably should have, uh, should have started with that, but at least we're ending on that. So people who listen <laughs> all the way through are going to get it. Thank you for being here again. And for, for folks that want to connect with you, want to learn more about either you or Next After, how do they reach you? Yeah, best way is to go to nextafter.com. That's where we have all of our research and um, training and you can learn more about you know, how we work with clients. And then for me, I think LinkedIn is the best place. So if you go LinkedIn and search for Brady Josephson, find me there, connect, shoot me a message. Love to, to connect with you on there. Perfect. Thanks again for being here, man. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.